Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed the first two chapters of the book last week. This is chapter three and chapter four this week. Chapter four is kind of a longer chapter, but most of you will be glad to know if you haven't read the book yet. This contains the infamous Ouija board story. So enjoy. Chapter three, learning to live with a ghost. The fact that my siblings and I started to get used to the strange happenings in our home sounds ludicrous, but that's exactly what happened. There certainly were still events that freaked us out, but most became mundane. There were no more demonic shadows on the wall or demonic animal noises. Perhaps whatever it was that was haunting us felt as if it had our attention. The whispering voices continued, but only seemed to happen in my bedroom. I mean, this was my room. I was a teenage boy. I needed my personal space. I was not about to live in constant fear in my space. The stereo was helping, but this was not enough. One evening, I was sitting on my waterbed, reading a book for school. This was no easy task, because when your waterbed is not completely full, that leaves your butt laying on the plywood platform of the bed. The whispering voices started emanating from the vents. Now, Normally, I would click on the stereo, but I had a hard time reading while listening to music. I found that distracting. Instead, I instinctively yelled, Will you please stop? Shockingly, the voices ceased. I was elated. Perhaps I could form some kind of a working relationship with these spirits after this episode. There were times when the voices would start up and I would ask politely for the whispering to stop and it would stop. To be fair, on other occasions, I would allow the voices to continue. In this way, the spirits and I seemed to peacefully coexist. At this point, I should give the reader an idea of our haunted house's floor plan. Upon entering our front door, one would find the living room and straight ahead from that was a bathroom. There was a door on the right of the bathroom that led to my sister's shared bedroom. A door in their room led to my bedroom, and my room had a door that led to a TV room where we had our experience with the demonic shadow. From that room, there were two other rooms, and then there was a dining room slash kitchen which was next to the living room. So basically, the layout formed a circle. To make entering rooms easier, our family left all the doors open. Now, most boys would not want to walk through their sister's bedroom, so now the reader understands why I found myself having to do this so often. On one particularly beautiful summer day when I was 14, I was sitting in my room watching television. My parents had bought a new tabletop TV, and so I inherited the old console TV that my mother and I had been watching when we had the pincushion incident. I have to be honest, just reading those words makes it hard to believe that they describe a haunting experience. Anyways, we had an above-ground pool in the backyard, and the rest of the family was enjoying that when I decided to join them for a bit. As I walked through the door into my sister's bedroom, I found several stuffed animals on the floor in the middle of the doorway. I picked them up and I placed them inside the toy box, which was just a few feet away. Now, this was a toy box with a lid, so I had to lift up the lid, and then I closed it when I finished. I spent a few minutes out by the pool chatting with everyone, and then I made my way back inside. As I entered my sister's bedroom, I stopped in shock. There, in the exact same place where I had only moments before removed them, were those same stuffed animals. 
I glanced over at the toy box. The lid was shut. There was no way that these stuffed animals just happened to fall out onto the floor. I was the only person in the house. This unnerved me, and I shut that connecting door, pushed the console television in front of it, and I never opened that door again until I moved out seven years later. Earlier I described the unexplained incidents in the house as mundane, and that was because they rarely changed. A few years after they started, we had a new experience. The sound of a baby crying. All members of our household heard this cry, except for my father. There was no mistaking the sound. This baby cry came from the little section right in front of the bathroom and my sister's bedroom door, and it occurred more than once. The first month we experienced this phenomenon, it happened frequently. After that, the baby cry was more random. This experience was enough to bolster my mother into seeking some help on our haunted house issue. She had already tried having a priest come by the house and bless it when we first started dealing with these events, but this had basically no effect, perhaps because the priest was only there briefly and he muttered a very quick prayer. This bit of his duty seemed like an inconvenience to him, and I had the feeling that he did not believe the house was haunted. So my mother was seeking help outside of the church. She stumbled upon a group of parapsychologists from the University of Louisville, although I'm not completely certain that they were affiliated with the university. In fact, I'm not completely sure how my mother found this group, and I don't recall the group's name, or if they even had an official name. What I do remember is that Two men and two women came to our home one evening, and that one of the women was a medium. My understanding is that the group had no details about our specific experiences, that they only knew that we had unexplained events happening in the home. The group started with a quick walk through the house, and when we arrived at my sister's bedroom, they started pulling out equipment. I was a little confused as to why this would be the spot that they would choose to investigate first, since... The rooms with the most activity were the living room, the TV room, and my bedroom. Investigators set up their equipment and invited my mom, sisters, and myself to sit on the floor with them. They placed a small white votive candle that they had brought with them on a small silver tray and lit it with a match. The room was dark, and the setting felt very eerie. I had seen seances in movies and on TV, and this felt very much like that especially when the investigators started asking the questions. They called out, Who are you, and why are you here? I strained my ears to hear an answer, but those never came. This went on for about 20 minutes. They then wrapped up their investigation and shared their findings. According to the parapsychologist, some horrible events had taken place on our property long before the house was ever built. They surmised that this could be the cause for our issues. The information that they revealed dated back to the days of the early pioneers, and what they shared was stunning. They said that a young woman had become pregnant out of wedlock, which would be a disgrace to her family. She hid the pregnancy, but when she eventually gave birth, her father became so irate that he killed her and the baby, and then buried the bodies to hide them. Her final resting places were beneath my room and the TV room. The woman's father did not stop there, though. His rage continued, and he killed the father of the child and buried him on the side of our house, just outside of my bedroom window. Later, the girl's father became remorseful and took his own life. 
he was also buried on the property. Basically, our home was a graveyard, a final resting place for people who came to violent ends. We wanted more information, obviously, and we peppered them with questions, but that was all that they shared. They never revealed which spirit or spirits had given them the information. Were any of these details true? Being skeptical, I doubted that the story had any validity. Although considering that they had little information about our experiences, I did find it interesting that the story would explain why we heard the crying of a baby. Could the whispering that I've heard in my room so many times have been the girl and her boyfriend? And the girl's father had been an angry man. Could he be the source of the demonic shadow that my siblings and I saw in the TV room? What about that noise and that loud bang outside of my bedroom window? Is it conceivable that these noises were created by him or the boyfriend? The story could easily fit the events that we had experienced. The one certainty that I had after this investigation was that the paranormal activity decreased. After the seance, a month or two would pass without anything weird happening in the house, and then something paranormal would occur, almost as if the spirits wanted to remind us that they were still there. There was no rhythm or pattern to the occurrences. The bulk of the activity took place the three years after the initial incident that my mother and I experienced in March of 1982. During the next two years, the haunting tapered off. Sure, there would still be the odd event here and there over the passing decades. My father and sister Michelle still live in that house, and she claims that there's still some activity. For nearly 40 years, something has haunted my childhood home, and my father still does not believe. Chapter 4. A Mother and Son Bond My mother and I had a great relationship before I hit my teen years. I was her bingo buddy back before there were age restrictions in the bingo halls. We would play bingo at least once a week, and sometimes as many as three times a week. As a 12-year-old kid, the thought of playing bingo and possibly winning money was a big thrill. Winning money is exciting for adults too, but honestly, for me today, the thought of playing bingo is right up there with watching paint dry or even worse, doing the painting. When I look back on those memories today, I realize that it was never really about the bingo. Being with my mother was important to me. This time holds a very special place in my heart because eventually that bond in our relationship would unravel. My mother and I also enjoyed playing poker as well, and I had a real knack for it despite being so young. My family regularly hosted small stakes games at either our house or at my grandmother Margaret's house, and I remembered those times fondly. Before anybody gets the wrong idea about my family being a bunch of degenerate gamblers, no large amounts of money were ever wagered, and while my mom did love to gamble, it was never anything that consumed her life or got out of control. Now, I've rarely gambled as an adult, and I've only been to Las Vegas twice and spent maybe $50 on some slots. But for me, the game that was played did not matter. I enjoyed the family time. This was fun, and it was a bonding that took place between my mother and I during these preteen days that would create the core that held us together when the relationship would begin to crack. Mothers instinctively seemed to have a unique bond with their children. The connection I had with my mom went beyond that to the point to where it seemed almost paranormal in nature. Despite being miles apart, my mother always sensed events that was in my life, even the subtle ones. After doing some research to find out more about this connection, 
I discovered that usually a bond such as the one we had occurred typically between a mother and her son. I've not been able to find a reason for why this is the case. I want to share some examples of the special intuition at play in our relationship and explore the possible cause for the spiritual connection. There were several days when I was younger that I would have a bad day at school, and as soon as I walked through the front door, my mother would ask, Is everything all right? I just had this funny feeling about you all day long. She would be spot on almost every single time. No doubt she would get similar feelings about my sisters, but with me, it was far more often. And I say that because I honestly do not recall her ever asking my sisters about bad days and mentioning that she had felt weird in connection to their days. When I mentioned subtle events earlier, this type of interaction is what I was referencing. This kind of connection seems normal, but there were many other instances that creep possibly into the realm of the paranormal. Some of the examples of mystical connections I want to save for later in the book where they'll seem to fit better, but here are a few that I can share now. Thinking back on some of this causes the hair on the back of my neck to prickle up, and these stories could fit into a science fiction thriller, but they really did happen. During my senior year of high school, 1985, my friend Tim and I were hanging out at another friend's home, Gina, on a regular basis. Gina had just given birth to a beautiful baby girl. We would go over and play cards and board games with her and her mother. I have very fond memories of Gina, primarily because I had a huge crush on her back at the time. I never actually told her about my feelings, and I never attempted to ask her out, but I suspect that she probably knew. Gina was gorgeous, and me? Let's just say I did not have much self-confidence during my high school years. She could have her pick of anyone, and I just assumed that I would not be on that list, although Gina never indicated that that was true. For me, I was happy to be her friend, and I decided it wasn't worth risking that close friendship, or even worse, getting my feelings hurt. And Gina needed me. Many times throughout my life, I have found myself drawn to certain people and placed in their sphere for whatever reasons that I may not have seen in that particular moment. In Gina's case, she had just had a baby while in high school. Several of her friends had abandoned her. And that's when I entered into her sphere. She later told me that she thought I was brought into her life because she needed me at that time. That's a pretty damn good feeling. One evening, we were sitting on her sofa in the living room, talking, laughing. It was pouring down rain outside. Tim was doing these funny-ass impressions of his grandpa and Jimmy Stewart. Now, those impressions had me smiling just thinking about them today. Suddenly, there was this loud bang that came from the laundry area of the mobile home. We all ran into the area to investigate. Now, this was not a separate room since this was a mobile home, and the washer and dryer hookups were just off of a hallway leading into the main bedroom. The sofa we were sitting on looked onto the dining area, and that hallway ran just to the left of the dining room. So the laundry area was right as you entered the hallway to the left. This layout means that we were less than 50 feet away from the crashing noise. Our investigation revealed that a full bottle of washing detergent had fallen from the shelf onto the washer, sending the explosive sound through the entire home. If laundry were being done at that time, a washer in the spin cycle could possibly vibrate a bottle off of the overhead shelf. But laundry was not being done at that time. 
neither the washer nor the dryer were running. Now most people will think I'm weird because what seemed like nothing more than a bottle of detergent falling from a shelf was something far more to me. This was a sign. I immediately knew that something was wrong. Now these were the days before cell phones and my parents did not have a clue where I was so they had no way to contact me if something were wrong. Gina had a phone that I could have easily used but I lived only five minutes away from home so I turned to Tim and I insisted we have to go. When we arrived, the house was erupting with energy. My mother was extremely upset, and she quickly told us why. My Uncle Donnie had come to the house in a rage. He had gotten into a fight with a co-worker after the man sucker punched him. Donnie had come to the house to enlist my father's help in finding this co-worker and getting some revenge. My father had gone with him, and this, of course, left my mother very worried. Fortunately, cooler heads prevailed, and nothing further happened that night between my father, uncle, and the co-worker. The mystery was whether the detergent falling from the shelf was connected to this incident. Most people would not have given this a second thought, but I immediately took it as a sign that I needed to get home. Why? All that I could surmise was I just knew. Did my mom send me some kind of message telepathically? Did that manifest into some type of energy that knocked the detergent off of the shelf? What I did know was that she needed me, and she found a way to contact me. This was one of the more profound examples of our connection while she was alive. I will talk about afterlife examples later in the book. Another example that I'd like to share involved my very first heartbreak and the events that led up to that. My first love was a young lady named Donna. She was a beautiful red-haired girl with freckles that had everyone at my school enamored. She was a teenage model. She was on the high school dance team and extremely popular, the exact opposite of me. However, I initially did not find her attractive because I really was not into red hair and freckles. I was a late bloomer when it came to girls, and at 17, I was more interested in playing sports every waking minute of the day that I was not in school. I always had a football or a basketball in my hand. Even though most boys my age were thinking about girls nonstop, that bug had not really bitten me yet. But trust me, that bug was in flight. Donna asked me to be part of a small makeshift haunted house that her and her father were putting together. I agreed, and this started a series of phone calls between us that steadily got longer. Eventually, I realized that the most popular girl in school may actually be interested in me. How in the world could that be possible? Remember, my self-confidence was pretty low in school. I suddenly realized two things. First, Donna really was beautiful. And I don't just mean physically, but in every other way. And two, there was definitely more to life than sports. Over the next four months, Donna and I spent a lot of time together. Her family was great, too. Her father would actually invite me over to the house to watch University of Kentucky basketball games with him, and her mom and little brother were sweethearts. I went from no interest in girls to head over heels in love seemingly overnight. She was all that I literally could think about. This was the best feeling that I had ever experienced. I wanted to spend every second of the day with her, and I wanted to spend every penny that I had on her. Unfortunately, young love does not tend to last. The downfall to our relationship started on New Year's Eve, 1985. We attended a party with a bunch of her friends, 
whom I knew but had never really hung out with much. Now, I've always been a person who was against drugs and drinking, especially at that time. As I've gotten older, I've become more of a to-each-their-own kind of person, especially when it comes to marijuana and alcohol. I'm still extremely anti-drug and against anybody driving while they're impaired. This was a hard stance to take as a high schooler, and even harder with a girlfriend who does not share those exact same views. The kids at this party were drinking, including Donna. When I mentioned to her that I wished that she wouldn't drink, she said that I was overreacting, and this led to us having a disagreement. To compound this disagreement, earlier we had clashed over a purchase. Another strong principle of mine is to avoid Ouija boards. I will not use an Ouija board, and I dislike even being in the presence of one. While some people may think that this stance is being kind of silly because you can pick up a basic Ouija board at a toy store, for me, this is not just a game. So when Donna suggested that we stop by the local Toys R Us and pick up an Ouija board for the party, I vehemently expressed my disdain for the idea. But I was in love, so I caved to her request. Deep down, I was hurt because Donna clearly knew how I felt about Ouija boards. We had worked on our senior thesis together, and the subject had been Satanism and the occult. So trust me when I say she was well aware of my feelings. We arrived at the party around 9 p.m., and by 10 p.m., a group of five or six kids that included Donna were gathered in a bedroom sitting around the Ouija board that we had just purchased. When I walked into the room and I saw that they were using the board, I immediately turned around and headed to the living room. I wanted distance between myself and that board. My hatred for the Ouija board goes all the way back from watching the movie The Exorcist the first time. It terrified me. This evening was not going well, and I felt extremely uncomfortable on top of that. I was fighting with the girl I loved, and I felt disappointed because she was drinking and playing with this board, which clearly meant that she did not give a damn about my feelings. A friend of mine from the neighborhood stopped by the party. His name was Andy, and he was a musician. So he plopped down on the piano that was in the living room, and he played for a few minutes. One of the young ladies, who had been back in the bedroom, came out, and when she saw Andy, she asked if he'd like to come in and try out the Ouija board. Andy got a look of terror on his face that I will never forget. He quickly blurted out that he could not be in the same house as on the Ouija board, and he left immediately. I never found out what the reason was that Andy had for being that fearful. The exorcist had given me a healthy fear of the board, but not one so intense that I would refuse to be in the same house as the board. That would soon change. The party ended around 2 a.m. I put the board in the box in the back of my baby blue 1978 Olds Cutlass Supreme while Donna settled into the front passenger seat. A 15-minute drive to Donna's house seemed more like an hour-long drive with the awkward silence between us. Once we arrived at her house, she immediately opened the door and hastily jumped out of the car. I reminded her to grab the Ouija board out of the back, but she replied that she would get it the following day. Then she quickly walked towards her house. There was no goodbye, no hug, and definitely no kiss. She seemed to have a desire to get as far away from me as quickly as possible. Now, the experience that I'm about to share has only been told to one other person in my life, my mother. 
While hosting Hillbilly Horror Stories, I've mentioned several times that I have an Ouija board story that scared me, but I've never specifically shared the tale. The experience was so terrifying that it not only enforced my beliefs about not using an Ouija board, but it has made it so that I will not be associated with their use in any way, and I strongly avoid being in the same vicinity. My wife Tracy has tried to coax this story from me several times, but I would never tell her. Many people ask why I share so many paranormal stories, but have refused to share this one. This may not make sense to some, but it is about credibility for me. For all intents and purposes, this story is just too hard to believe. Now, I know for those who do not believe in the paranormal that all of my stories are unbelievable. This one, though, is way out there. My mother was the only one I felt that I could tell this experience because I knew that she would believe me. That was part of our bond. Even though we had plenty of differences when it came to the paranormal, we were on the same page. I knew she was the only person that I could tell this story to without ridicule. Was this the beginning of the end for us? Why could she not see my side of things? How had I suddenly become the bad guy? We had never had a disagreement before today. The mature way to handle this situation would have been to ask her these questions before I dropped her off and instead of sitting in awkward silence. I mean, after all, I had been asking myself those same questions while we sat in silence as I drove her home. How easy would it have been to just talk to her? But I chickened out every time I started to open my mouth and start the discussion. Somewhere in the back of my mind, I told myself to... Just wait and see what happened the following day. But would she even talk to me the following day? Suddenly, I was ripped out of my inner thoughts by a scratching sound. I had made it to the Kmart that was just a block or so from Donna's house. The location was memorable because that's where I pulled the car over thinking that I was having car trouble. The hope is that I had just run over a tree branch and gotten it caught underneath the car. You see, this had happened to me before and that scratching noise sounded very similar. I got out of the car, and I checked the tires, and underneath the car, there was nothing that could be making the sound that I could see. I got back into the car and put it into gear, and the scratching noise happened again. I had not even taken my foot off of the brake, so the car was not moving. There was no way that my car could be dragging anything. The next thought was that perhaps an animal, like a cat, a possum, or even a raccoon, had gotten inside the car while we were at the party. I quickly dismissed this idea, though, because it was wintertime and I hadn't left any of my windows down. That only left one possibility, and that is what makes this story so hard to share and so unbelievable. I swear upon everything that I hold sacred that what I'm about to share is the absolute truth. After hearing the scratching continue, I put the car back into park, I opened both doors, and began feverishly searching the passenger side, front floorboard, and under the seat. I did not have a flashlight, but there was enough ambient light coming from the Kmart parking lot lamps above my car for me to see that there was nothing in my car that could be making the scratching sound. The scratching sound continued as I began my search of the back seat and the floorboard. This seemed to be the area of the sound's origination. The only thing back there was the box with the Ouija board inside. Surely the sound was not coming from that box. I picked up the box, I gave it a shake. The scratching got louder and more frantic. There was something in that box with the board. 
Did a bug or small rodent hop in there at the party, and now my shaking had really angered it and got it all scratching more fervently? I set the box down on the back seat of the car, and I waited a few seconds for whatever was in the box to calm down. My heart was racing. I was anxious about opening the box, and I formulated a plan in which I would put the box on the ground in the parking lot and open the lid with my foot. This way, I would avoid an angry mouse jumping at my face. I gave my plan a try. I tried a few times to carefully raise the lid of the box with my shoe, but it was on too tight. So I tried flipping the box over a few times to see if the lid would just release. This did not work either. I realized that I was just going to have to lift the lid off with my hands. So I gathered the courage. I walked over to the box and I lifted the top off. I was literally shocked to find nothing in the box other than the board and the planchette. As I pondered why there had been a scratching sound coming from the box, the most incredible thing happened. The heart-shaped planchette started to move. I sat in awe as I watched it slowly and methodically move from letter to letter. First the J, and then almost immediately to the E, the R, the R, and finally the Y. This board had just spelled out my name in the middle of a Kmart parking lot with no one touching the planchette. I was frozen in terror. I jumped in my car, leaving the box and the contents in the parking lot. Panic oozed through my muscles as I slammed the car into drive and hit the accelerator. I was desperate to get home and distance myself between that Ouija board. I was home in less than five minutes. After arriving at the house, I sat in the driveway trying to gather myself. I was extremely rattled. The past six hours with Donna had upset me enough, but this Ouija board experience had me disturbed. I glanced at my watch, and it had only been 20 minutes since I dropped Donna off, but it felt like much longer. As I walked into the door, my mother rushed into the living room from the kitchen and exclaimed, What happened? She was clearly concerned. She intuitively knew something had happened, but she did not know the details. Because of our bond, I was not surprised that she knew that something had happened. We sat down in the living room and I detailed exactly what had just taken place in the Kmart parking lot. I had no hesitation in telling her and she didn't doubt a single word of my story. I was confident she would believe me. And that really proves that our connection because for 35 years I would not tell another soul that story. My mother had no words of wisdom or advice. She just listened and believed, and that was all that I needed at that moment. The next morning, I decided that I needed to go over to Donna's house and talk with her. I tried to call her, but she was not answering the phone. Now, making a personal, unannounced visit to her house was probably not the best idea, but the idea of us breaking up was tearing me up inside. I got in my car, I turned over the ignition, shifted into reverse, placed my arm on the back passenger seat, looking over my shoulder... I started to back out of the driveway. As I reached the street and started to turn my head back towards the front, I caught a glimpse of the back seat. There sat the Ouija board box. I slammed on the brakes and immediately pulled back into the driveway. I ran into the house to try to find my mom, but she was in the shower. 
She was worried when I told her about the Ouija board in the car, and we discussed how to handle this for about 30 minutes. We were not Ouija board experts, and there was no internet to do research on how to properly destroy a board back then. I remembered some research from my senior thesis, so I knew that burning this was completely out of the question. Finally, we decided to bury it in a small patch of woods behind our house. I went out there alone, and I dug a hole about three feet deep, just wide enough for the box to fit into. I covered it with the dirt, and I did my best to stomp the earth as tight as I possibly could. That board is still buried in an unmarked grave behind my dad's haunted house. Now that I've shared the most terrifying moment in my entire life, I want to circle back around to what this chapter's theme is about, and that was my relationship with my mother. I'd mentioned that my very first heartbreak would reveal another paranormal angle to our connection. Donna and I patched things up after the party. I never told her about the Ouija board incident or that I buried it behind my house. Our relationship was on borrowed time, though, because we were two vastly different people. Sometimes love can keep you blinded to those differences until you're forced to see them. After a few weeks, we began to see each other less, and we talked less. This was killing me inside because I really did love her, or at least I thought I did. One Saturday, near the end of January, I was getting ready to go to Donna's house to watch a basketball game with her dad. My mom, out of the blue, asked me not to go. She practically begged me to stay home. Now, this was extremely weird. When I asked why, she said that this visit to Donna's house would not end well. And I was confused because the plan was to watch a ball game with Donna's dad. I was not even sure that Donna was even going to be at the house. Then my mother said, Just so you know, she's getting back together with her old boyfriend. Honestly, this pissed me off because the message was not delivered in a loving or a sincere way, but rather it had a uh, kind of a smart-ass tone to it. This sounded to me as though she was saying, Fine, don't listen to me. You'll get what you deserve. I told her that I had no clue what she was talking about and I left. When I arrived at Donna's house, I knocked on the door, but there was no answer. Donna's family had told me in the past that if there was no answer, to go ahead and come inside if they were expecting me. They were expecting me, so I let myself in and I walked through the formal living room towards the dining room and the kitchen area. I could hear water running in the kitchen sink and Donna and her mother talking. I got as far as the edge of the doorway when I heard Donna's mother say something to the effect of, He's a good guy. You can't keep stringing him along, especially if you're seeing Jimmy now, too. This crushed me, because you guessed it, Jimmy was her ex-boyfriend. This boyfriend had cheated on her, he was a major drug user, and she had told me so many negative things about him. I turned and I left the house without anyone even knowing that I was there. I wish that I had not walked into that house and heard that conversation. The journey back home was extremely hard. And when I arrived, I headed straight back to my bedroom and put our song on the record player and played it over and over as I cried my eyes out. I have a hard time, even today, hearing Lionel Richie's Say You, Say Me without tearing up a little bit. My mother came back to my room and she sat on the bed beside me. This was the first time in my entire life that I had ever felt this kind of heartbreak. This was a time when I desperately needed someone to put their arms around me and assure me that everything was going to be all right. My mother did not offer comfort. 
She said, When are you going to start listening to me? I told you so. Then she walked out of the room. This was just one of the situations that would drive a wedge between my mother and I, and I could never figure out the reasons for her actions. There were times when she was quick to be there for me on a bad day, and in other times, such as this, where she moved from trying to save me from heartache to an I told you so moment. As I evaluated our relationship, I realized that my mom was not a very demonstrative or affectionate person, so I probably just misunderstood her many times. This has led to some guilt on my part. Donna officially broke up with me the day after this happened, but by this point, I was all cried out. The bottom line to the example that I just shared is that my mother knew what was going on with Donna. She knew that I was going to get hurt if I went to Donna's house. I don't know how she knew that this was going to happen. But she not only knew that I would be devastated, she also knew that Donna was getting back with her ex-boyfriend. I have my theories as to why this special bond between my mother and I was so strong. I believe that she inherited certain abilities from her grandmother, Ader Burnett. Ader was part Cherokee, and she had a few unique abilities of her own. One of these abilities was that she could rapidly increase the healing time and lasting effects of burns. One time at her house, I severely burned the bottom side of my right wrist on a griddle. I was about 10 years old, and the burn immediately blistered. My mother ran me into the living room where my grandmother was sitting and told her exactly what happened. Ada grabbed my wrist, placed it close to her lips, and started whispering something that I could not understand. This was partly due to the softness of the whisper, but I also believe she was speaking another language. As she spoke, she intermittently blew lightly on the burn. This was one of the oddest things that I had encountered in my ten years of life. When she was finished, I asked my mom if the medicine they were going to put on it would hurt. She informed me that there would be no need for medicine or a bandage. On the trip home, an hour or so later, I noticed that my injury no longer hurt. The burn was still very visible, but there was no pain, even when I touched the wound. When I asked my mother about this experience, she told me that it was a gift that my grandmother had because she was Native American. When I asked my mother what it was that my grandmother had whispered to the burn, my mother said that she did not know. The only thing that she knew is that this gift had been passed on to Ada from her mother, who had the gift passed on to her from her mother. Interestingly, this gift was not passed from Ada onto her daughter. I may not know what my great-grandmother said to the burn, but I do know that it worked. Three days after the accident, there was not a single mark from what I believe was at least a second-degree burn. Ader could also read palms. That is an ability that I believe that she passed on to my mother. My mother was always good at reading palms, even though she had no professional training. She could study a person's palm and tell them personal things that would catch them off guard. I once had a friend over to the house who was lamenting that he had lost something a few weeks earlier. My mother asked for his hand, stared at it for about 30 seconds, and began telling him where to look for this missing object. She told him that after he walked into his house, he would be in the living room, and if he walked straight ahead, he would be in the dining room. My friend confirmed that what she was telling him was the right layout of his house. 
She then told him that the closet was there on the left-hand side of the living room as one entered the dining room. This was correct as well. A mother told him that the object he was looking for was in that closet inside of a cowboy hat that was resting on the shelf at the top of the closet. He was flabbergasted that she not only knew the layout of the house, but she knew where the cowboy hat was on the shelf of the closet. After arriving home later that evening, he called to inform me that the object was indeed exactly where she said that it was. There were many paranormal experiences in my early life. These would not end as I got older. I will share more of these paranormal experiences in upcoming chapters, but I next want to focus on my first marriage and subsequent divorce that spiraled me into depression and a suicide attempt. The second section of the book will deal with some heavy topics and force me to deal with demons that I have suppressed for many years.